Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome all to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going today? It's going very well, Nate. I'm, uh, I'm always happy to join you here. Our guest today is Kenneth Crowther. Uh, he is a product security leader at GE Global Research. I caught Kenneth at the DHS-ICS-JWG, the, uh, the fall meeting of the Department of Homeland Security's Industrial Control System Joint Working Group. Kenneth is going to be talking to us about what is product security? What's the product security function at GE? Okay, let's listen in to your interview with Kenneth. Kenneth, you're working with product security at GE. What is product security? How, how does that work? The first, I guess, differentiating factor that we have to make is that there's a team of people who are focused on protecting the networks. Um, there are some people protecting the IT networks, um, and uh, they have a, uh, devices and applications. They're looking at those devices. They're looking at operations. There's cyber intel that's telling them what kinds of tactics and techniques are emerging. There's a similar kind of operation on our manufacturing facilities. But then there's the security that has to happen before a product is released. So when we build a turbine, it's going to have uh, discrete reprogrammable logic as a part of that. And at some point in this design process, we need to make sure that developers are trained, that they understand what good secure development practices are like. At some point, we need to make sure we're understanding the requirements and building them into this overall engineering design process. At some point, we need to do a threat model and figure out all the different ways that things can be spoofed, tampered, disclosed, uh, denied. Um, and at some point, we need to take those, create a set of um, testable controls. We need to then build this uh, testing environment into the build environment so we can test them over and over again as the product is being built. And then finally, it... Uh, goes out the door, but product security doesn't even stop there. We have to figure out ways to track the bill of materials that went into this product so that if there's a third-party vulnerability, we can make sure we address it, pass it on to our customers, and we need to continue to interact with our customers and with the researchers as they discover more information about our products so that we can respond quickly and keep our customers safe. So product security is trying to figure out the way to secure the product at the earliest, which means the cheapest point possible, to the best extent possible, which means later in the, this uh, development life cycle. And we need to continue to do it in a way that's affordable. So that's what product security is uh, in, in a nutshell. My role as the product security leader in GE Global Research is looking more at the early, the early end of the engineering development life cycle. So we're looking at earlier technologies that are going to result in prototypes or early pilots or maybe initial pilots even in a customer environment. And the question is, when do we start introducing security? Um, because if you ask a researcher who's focused on developing a technology that doesn't even exist yet and all they want to do is produce a prototype, that could definitely slow them down. On the other hand, 
if they produce this prototype and it works really well, then it could easily be containerized and launched into a new product. And uh, it's going to have to be recoded if security isn't paid attention to. So this is kind of the big product security problem. We have all these levers across the development lifecycle, and uh, the, the product security leader is to look across those, and a product security engineer is then to develop ideas and ways that help each of the development teams uh, to either do the threat model or improve their training. Andrew, we're going to end up covering a lot of, of technical matters today, but I'm curious, before we get into the real brunt of all that, or, or from where we are now, what kind of products are we dealing with? What kind of products does GE make that Kenneth's involved in? Well, the truth is, I don't know which products Kenneth's involved in, but GE makes a lot of products. And you know, at Waterfall, we work with a lot of GE products. We connect to a lot of GE products. So you know, here's a few, he he gave an example of a a, a hydroelectric uh, you know power generator. Um, you know, the, the the examples I'm more familiar with. Um, you know, GE produces iFix. Uh, this is a human machine interface. This is the the software that you know. If you see a picture of a control room, you see countless monitors, you see projection screens. There's graphics up on the projection screens. There's there's green lights. There's red blinking lights. That's that's the HMI software. Uh, a typical uh, installation will have I don't know maybe a thousand screens defined. And when you click on stuff, you you navigate between screens. There are summary screens. There are detail screens for each of the the bits of details. That's one product. Um, another product is the GE Historian. This is a product that keeps track of all those values over time so that you know engineers can go back and do analysis. They can say, you know, something went wrong. Uh, what exactly went wrong? Let's understand that because we, we can look at the readings over a period of time. Or they could do optimization. They can say, you know, that batch worked really well. This one, you know, isn't working so well. What's the difference? What can we do differently in the future? And, you know, they, they produce not just software products, but hardware products. I mean, he talked about jet engines. He talked about the, the hydro turbines. GE produces a lot of steam turbines as well. They produce a lot of natural gas turbines. All of these turbines turn one kind of energy, you know, natural gas or steam pressure or, or water pressure into rotation. The rotation turns the generator. The generator produces electricity. The turbines are rotating equipment and all rotating equipment wears out. A symptom of wear is vibration. And so vibration analysis is enormously important. GE produces sensors that measure vibration and you know, temperature, hot spots, and other characteristics of the turbines. They, uh, you know, they, they report these readings to a, a GE control center. So all of this software, the, the vibration monitoring, the vibration analysis, the, the communications to the, the main control center, the central GE system that, that uh, you know, analyzes and correlates st this stuff uh, across GE products all over the world and draws conclusions about you need to, you know, adjust this turbine this way or that way. There's a lot of software that, you know, that GE produces. And there's a lot of hardware that that, that software is associated with. So Andrew, when I typically think about product security, I think in terms of it exists, the security, or it doesn't, and to what extent does it exist? What, what Kenneth is talking about is that there's actually a time dimension to this problem, that at a certain point in the production phase, you start thinking about security, which I think is pretty interesting. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, I did product development myself. I was I was leading product development teams for many years, and uh, common wisdom is that it's much cheaper to build security into the design of the product than it is to try and retrofit it on an existing product. But to Kenneth's point, um, when do you start that? When do you start that process? I mean, uh, it's certainly not the first thing you do. Let's figure out how to you know how to secure the product before we know what the product is. We've got to we got to figure out what the product is. You know, to his point, um, engineers maybe may need to do a bunch of prototyping. They may to, may need to figure out if the product can be built at all. They may have an idea for you know a great new way to to solve a problem, and you know using I don't know artificial intelligence, machine learning, something. Um, you know, the difference between idea and reality is, is that you actually have to build it. So, you know, they're building it, they're testing it, they're discovering whether it's possible at all. Do you want to get in and start messing with that process by saying, no, no, you need to think about security. And they're saying, but we don't even know if this can be done. Uh, you know, give us a chance to prove that it can be done. You know, and then you mentioned containerization. So, you know, containerization is a new thing. It's it, it, it came around after I was developing product. But my understanding of it is, you know, containerization is like a, a lightweight virtual machine. So once you have a prototype that seems to work, um, in, you know, if you just said wrap it up and ship it, you'd have something that, you know, in a sense looks horrible, would have files all over the place, would, you know, would not would not be packaged nicely. Containerization, in my understanding, is a way to package this stuff up. You can take a prototype that works, but is messy in terms of what it does to your machine, and uh, sort of deploy it in a mini virtual machine. So the mess is contained, and the end user doesn't see it. Oh, wait, what happened to security? So, you know, it's the, the lesson I take is that it's it's not an easy an easy. Uh, answer trying to figure out where to start inserting all of this stuff that needs to be done in terms of threat model and security controls into a process um, that has sort of a, a, a very nebulous beginning. And, and to his point, um, you know, when you've got mature products, if if you've acquired a product, if you've acquired a business, well, going in and, you know, I remember looking at, at our product um, years ago when when security was just starting to be a thing we had a control system product we had millions of lines of code and we said what would it take to make this more secure well it's a major effort it would be a major investment and then the question becomes who's going to pay for that does anyone want these features would anyone pay for a new version that had all this stuff in it um you know back then the answer was generally not they'd you know prefer to point the finger at the vendor and say why didn't you do this well because it wasn't a thing when, when we started developing these millions of lines of code so yeah it's it's uh it's trickier than it seems i think is the the, the lesson i take away let's get back to the second part of kenneth's answer to your first question so that's what product security is across ge there's a lot of variation and fluctuation into uh, to what extent each of these uh, different product security activities um, are completed. And, uh, and there's a lot of factors that determine that. Um, the market into which they're going, 
the market pressures <laughs> under which those uh, product teams are to deliver, um, the uh, maturity of the product. If you have a legacy product that you inherited from another company that you bought, then there are only a certain number of things that you can do to secure it before you have to do a complete architectural redesign, which is very expensive. Um, and, uh, and there are other factors uh, that are associated with um, what we feel is our responsibility, um, what the market uh, is allowing us to do. And just one thing to think about, if we delay a product to market by, say, a month, um, because maybe we're doing some extra testing or something like that, it can decrease our market share, which results in sustained revenue loss across the entire lifetime of the product. And uh, on the other hand, if we release an insecure product and we end up having to uh, uh, evaluate, test, uh, patch across the, a set of versions, it ends up costing a thousand times as much as it would have cost if we would have uh, detected it during testing um, and potentially um, uh, potentially an order of magnitude more if we could have uh, caught it during the conceptual design phase. And so this is, this is the product security challenge is to figure out when do you do uh, what level of effort uh, as the products are being developed and how do you get the engineers to talk to the security folks to get management approval to make sure that these um, uh, engineering items are put into the backlog and then ultimately uh, when you start including things like supply chain third-party products how do you get those guys to work with procurement um, so that we can do the right product checks and then put the right controls in to compensate for whatever um, threat susceptibilities or gaps we find in those third-party products that we have to integrate. The, the bottom line of all product security is that um, a, uh, in any discrete logic system, you have to establish trust somewhere. And uh, a threat susceptibility emerges as soon as you just go underneath that layer of trust. And uh, so if it's a software application, underneath that layer of trust might be something having to do with an operating system. If it's the operating system, underneath that layer of trust might be something having to do with the firmware. If it's the firmware, then it might have be something having to do with the, the boot cycle or the hardware or the configuration or the architecture associated with how it was built onto this device. Um, at some point, you have to make decisions about what level of uh, of risk is enough and whether or not you should just assume that the layers underneath you are going to protect you and what kind of hooks you should put into there. And uh, anyway, all of this is mixed into the product security challenge. Um, and uh, But the goal is to build in as much security as cheaply as possible uh, into our products. When Kenneth mentions that it, it could cost a thousand times more to deal with a major flaw in an already released product. I assume that's hyperbole, Andrew, but but how, how big is an issue like that in your experience? How much does it really cost to deal with a product after the fact rather than before? You know, I can't speak to the numbers at GE. It, a thousand times seems uh, a little high. It might have been a bit of hyperbole, but, you know, back in the day when I was developing SCADA product, our rule of thumb was at least 10 times and you know it wasn't so much security after the fact it was uh it was just defects um the question was you know how reliable does the product have to be before you can release it and there is a lot of of management pressure to release product quickly um 
but the you know the 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 downside if you if you release product and it has a critical defect in it you know you you, you fumble the the testing process and you let something leak out that um simply won't run when the customer actually tries to deploy it it crashes after half an hour or something like this you know that's extremely embarrassing it it uh, it messes with your reputation big time and now you've got an emergency now you know people are are starting to deploy this you've got to you've got to go back after the fact and you reach in you find the the code that's at fault you change the code it might be you know it might be one line of code it might be a hundred lines of code You'd think that'd be easy. It's a hundred lines of code, but now, you know, this code might be buried in a library that's used in a bunch of different executables in your product. It might be in a, a core function. How much of your regression test suite do you have to repeat? You might have to spend weeks or longer of you know a team of three or four people repeating your regression tests to make sure that this change, this hundred line change. Um, has not introduced new bugs. Um, and, you know, it gets worse when you start talking about products that have, have uh, uh, you know, layers of, of software. A, a core piece of software is used in even more products than, than, than I was used to. It gets worse when, when you have a very large user base. And now you've got to ask the question, you know, this, this defect we've discovered, um, how does it affect our users? How can we communicate this to our users? Uh, it adds up very quickly. You know, my, my rule of thumb of, of 10 times back from the day might might be uh, too little, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very costly. And, you know, the, the, the thing that I took away from, from Kenneth's remarks um, had to do with sort of the, the layers of complexity. Um, you know, Back in the day, in, in the beginning of the security space, um, I remember asking questions about the security of the product. Everybody wanted to know how secure your product was. But to Kenneth's point, um, a lot of GE customers buy a lot of GE product and put them together into systems of GE product. And now it's really how secure is the system that is the question. And it's not just how secure is a single piece of software? It is a question of, well, the software runs on an operating system. Um, what are we going to do about vulnerabilities potentially in the operating system, currently known and possibly future? What kind of compensating measures does it make sense to put in place? Um, you know, there might be hardware design issues that that come into play because the operating system runs on hardware. It runs on, you know, runs on firmware. It runs on, on uh, you know, chipsets that are arranged physically that that may be physically accessible all of these issues uh add up in in the modern world so um i guess the <laughs> the short answer is uh i don't envy him so that's a lot of stuff i mean i've i've worked for vendors all of my career i know that it's you know it's easy to point fingers and a lot of pe people point fingers at the vendors and you know just from what you've said, it's clear that it's much harder <laughs> to be a vendor. It's much harder to, to solve this problem than to point the finger at, at someone and say, solve it. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a hard problem. Um, in general, I feel like our customers understand uh, the challenging situation that we're in. Um, this is why we bring up security when, 
we're doing negotiations on products. Uh, we try to drive them to have more security requirements, but some of those security requirements cost money, and uh, so we go through this negotiation with them. Um, sometimes we do have uh, vendors of security products <laughs> point fingers at us, um, and uh, but what I'm hoping is that as we do podcasts like this, then they get more and more insights into the product security challenge. And uh, we are finding that uh, researchers are increasingly collaborating with us. Um, they're disclosing their research to us and working with us to help us understand the, the vulnerability, find it, replicate it. Uh, and in many cases, they're helping us to figure out ways to, to patch it and to, to do it quickly and efficiently. Um, so that community, I feel like, is, is really... Um, uh, we're on a journey together, and they're really helping us <laughs> through this process. Um, so not too much finger-pointing, but I do feel like the vendor gets blamed a lot, <laughs> maybe more often than we deserve. So, you know, you covered a lot of ground in your, your introduction there. Um, can you give us a couple of, of, you know, sort of easy examples so we can understand, you know, some of the, the, the specifics that you're dealing with? Sure. Um, so the first thing is that... Uh, Think of an example product, a hydroelectric generation facility, right? It has lots of parts, uh, potentially over 100,000 parts. Um, only a small fraction of those are going to be cyber parts, and yet our product security for those cyber parts is part of this bigger safety, security, um, uh, affordability, maintainability uh, process that's going into this engineering design so it's hard to find the right amount of priority to fit in there and how to what and the right amount of detail to track in terms of our uh, suppliers, products, everything like that. Another thing to think about is uh, these products have long lifetimes, right? Uh, generally, we plan for something on the order of like 15 years. Um, uh, some of these products end up being in operation a lot longer than that. So a, a traditional security approach might be to pay attention to the tactics and techniques um, of adversaries as they have been seen. But the tactics and techniques that are around now might not be the tactics and techniques that are going to be uh, uh, attempting to exploit our products in 15, 15 years or so. And so we need a new model, kind of a new paradigm of going through that process um, and if you're interested, we, I can talk a little bit more about that, uh, that, that whole paradigm. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's classic that, that uh, this stuff lasts a long time and, you know, attack techniques evolve and the product has a limited opportunity to evolve. You've got a new paradigm. Tell us, please. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not brand new. Um, and, uh, and we borrow a lot from uh, leading figures like Adam Shostak at Microsoft. Um, but the idea is this, that instead of, Instead of looking at tactics and techniques against your uh, product, you have to instead develop some kind of a trust model. So imagine a trust model that looks something like this. You take your product, you decompose it into all of the data resources. Um, so these are uh, little information entities that process information or store information. Right? These are the digital pieces that ultimately control your physical process. And if you take that and decompose it into each of those data, data um, resources, then we can start asking, how can we spoof that data resource, right? How can I pretend like I'm some other entity 
and get that data resource to operate in a certain way? How can I tamper with that data resource? How can I change a parameter? Or um, how can I uh, repudiate? How can I blame some action that my operation that I'm pushing is going to take versus some other operation? How can I blame it on that other operation? How do I deny this service? Like, how do I flood it or shut it down or block it? how do I disclose information? How do I send this piece of information somewhere else outside the system? And by going through that, the, that these set of questions a bit about how can you violate this trust model, then we start developing our own attack surface, and we start to layer the controls on top of it, and we start to see that once we have encrypted protocols, then all of these kinds of different kinds of tampering processes are no longer easily available uh, once we have authentication, then these type of spoofing activities are no longer available. Once we are, right, so as soon as we start layering these controls onto our attack surface, we start to realize where the gaps are. These gaps we call threat susceptibilities. These threat susceptibilities then start the negotiation process for remediation. So we, we work with the engineering team to figure out remediations that can be done, and then it comes down to making decisions, right? So... Um, uh, like I said before, there's always going to be threat susceptibilities, and the only way that we're going to be able to avoid that is if we somehow build special uh, cryptological silica so that we can then build the chips on top of that, uh, which can store keys, which we can then um, build in specialized processes for those keys to use, right? And then we start building everything from there, and there's full attestation all the way down to the dirt from which it's made. But that would we would spend ourselves into oblivion, right? We would make controllers that are unaffordable, and so what we do is we see what's the highest level that we can start protecting these things um, at, and uh, and then we work down until we hit these gaps, these threat susceptibilities. That's when it starts this uh, kind of negotiating process, um, and that's uh, the job of product security is to illuminate those. And then product security works with the engineers to figure out how to make the decisions to remediate um, those vulnerabilities, those potential vulnerabilities. What I took out of Kenneth's commentary here is the emphasis on data flows. There's, you know, in my experience, there's fundamentally two ways to think about computer programs. A lot of people think about them in terms of what's called the, the execution structure, which instructions are being executed, which functions are calling which other functions, the, the flow of control, if you like, um, from one part of the code to another. I've always found it more useful to think about uh, you know, large complex computer programs and computer systems in terms of data flows, saying what data, where, where's the data coming from, what, what's it mean, where's it going, and to Kenneth's point, fundamentally, how much do we trust it? Because it's impractical for, you know, for, for, every, for every computer instruction that operates on a piece of data, it's impractical for that instruction to ask the question, how much do I trust this data? How much should I validate this data? You know, that's an extreme example, but you know, there's every instruction, there's every function. Does every function that deal with data have to ask the question, should I trust it? Does every subsystem you know, have to ask the question, do I trust it? Um, generally, you, you, uh, you know, design your security system to validate, verify, inspect, uh, you know, secure 
uh, data flows on the way into more trusted systems. And there tends to be a higher degree of trust inside those systems and less checking of the data to make sure that it's it's uh, you know not malicious deep inside the system but you know how to do all this reliably is an open question how to do all this when data crosses you know vendor boundaries in in uh, in libraries and such inside your system you know these are all uh, very important questions to address and you know uh, again it I was reassured that that uh, you know this is the the uh, at least one of the approaches that that GE is using in the in the process of of uh, designing security systems for complex products. You know, I'm listening to you, and a lot of the the mitigations I hear you talking about are cryptographic, protecting the keys, encrypting the communication, cryptographic authentication, and you know. Uh, a favorite peeve of mine is that that uh, cryptographic solutions do not address two big issues. One is compromised endpoints. Take over one of the endpoints and you have legitimate access to the, the cryptographic mechanisms, the keys, everything. And you can encrypt attacks just as easily as, as you encrypt legitimate communications. Or, you know, launch a zero day into, I don't know, the, the, the Ethernet driver. Uh, a buffer overflow, and now the kernel in the target machine is is executing your code even before it works its way up into the the internet protocol stack, even before it works into the the cryptographic stack. Um, you know, if if what you're focused on is cryptography, um, are you not blind to these these other issues? Yeah, I th- I, that's a good point. If we were only focused on cryptography, then uh, and cryptological solutions, then we would be blind uh, to a lot of these issues. Um, but that's one in a toolbox. And the approach is that we start at the highest level, uh, what we call a level zero data flow diagram. And uh, it just it, it says that the product has inputs and outputs and that there's some way that uh, the product processes those things. If there are threat susceptibilities or vulnerabilities already there, we need to fix those before we can go further. We did then decompose that product into its individual pieces, right? The, the protocol gateways and the IOs and the data servers and the controllers and, uh, right, all of this stuff is at level one. And if we are starting to find uh, clear and open uh, communication at that level, then we need to start addressing those things before we go down to the next layer. If you then add encryption to that layer, when you go down to level two, now you're now you're further decomposing these uh, these uh, data features, these data resources that compose your product. That's when you start identifying where are the key stores, where are the kernels, how are the kernels starting to work, what are the processes. Um, at each layer, you're introducing more, uh, you're acknowledging more complexity, and you're starting to introduce more threat susceptibilities, you're expanding the attack surface, but you've got to fix the architecture at the higher level before you go down to that deeper level. And, uh, and so this is why product security is always this kind of negotiation with engineering through this development process. Um, and we only go down as far as we start coming up with uh, remediations that engineering needs to start talking about. Then we'll have a, a follow-up discussion as, uh, as appropriate. You know, Andrew, a wise man said, and I'm quoting here, in a properly protected SCADA network, encryption constitutes a secondary protective measure addressing only residual risks, 
Now, of course, that wise man was you. So I'm wondering, why is encryption coming up this early and this prominently in your discussion with Kenneth? That's a good question. And and I stand by my statement in context. I mean, when I wrote that, I was talking about thoroughly protected networks and systems. When it comes to product security, well, products can be deployed anywhere. They can be deployed in thoroughly protected networks. They can be deployed in horribly protected networks. Sometimes the product security is all we have. So I take Kenneth's point that a lot of the time it all starts with some kind of encryption. Let me give you an example. Let's say um, we decide that we have a a programmable logic controller and uh, we want to uh, password protect the function that lets you uh, change the program in the logic controller. You can ask you know, for values without a password, but if you want to change the program remotely, you've got to give a password. Well, there's limited value in, you know, changing the code in the PLC to require a password if the whole thing is happening in plain text, because then an attacker sitting on the network can see the traffic going into the PLC, can, you know, wait until someone legitimately reprograms a PLC, sees the password go by and says, okay, there's the password, logs in afterwards and reprograms a PLC to their heart's content. So, you know, to I accept the point that, that a lot of other security doesn't make any sense until you've got encryption. And, you know, he, he said there's a lot of, you know, a lot of his talking about where to get started is encryption. That's where you start. That that actually makes sense to me. Are there not downsides, though, to encryption and authentication when we're talking about really deep level OT systems? Yeah, so experts disagree on this. Um, there are voices in the community that say, look, uh, uh, encryption has its downsides. If you've got your communications encrypted, now you cannot see what the communications are, which makes debugging difficult. It makes emergency response. Oh, look, you know, the unit's vibrating. Uh, what happened? What's going on? You know, what kind of messages are being exchanged on the network? You can't see them. You can't see what's happening right now um, because it's all encrypted, um, which is, uh, you know, people people make distinctions between cryptographic authentication and actual encryption. Encryption hides the content a cryptographic checksum on the end of every message would let you see the message but would still authenticate the message and you could reject the message if if it is if it's not coming from an authentic source so there's there's subtleties that can get into there um, but fundamentally those experts who are doing that debating in my best estimation do not work for product vendors the consensus among product vendors seems to be start with encryption the voices who are arguing against it have been diminishing over time. They seem to have resigned themselves that encryption is where everything starts. You've talked about sort of the the the, the preventive. You mentioned briefly the P cert. You talked about you know not just you know fixing the problem up front because it's it's much cheaper. You also talked about incident response. What do you do on the on the incident response side? I think that's a really good question because. Um, most of the time when we think of incident response, we think of owners and operators responding to an incident where they own the infrastructure. In this case, it's our customer notifying us that they think something might be happening and they think that our product might be involved in it. And uh, the other the other type of uh, product security incident is 
uh, we monitor the third-party products that we use, and sometimes there is a reported vulnerability, uh, and we need to quickly respond in kind so that we can get this information to our customers. First of all, to let them know <laughs> that this product is in our product, and second of all, to help them through that process of um, updating it. Um, so, for example, when I when I first joined GE, um, a researcher submitted uh, some information to us that, uh, and I, unfortunately, I can't be specific. Um, that uh, they found that this one library um, had a particular. Um, uh, vulnerability in how it was, if it was configured in certain ways. And uh, so we had to somehow sweep across, we have over a thousand cyber physical products. So we had to sweep across all these products. And this just happens to be a library that is um, used in a lot of devices that do communication of some sort, right? So we had to sweep across all these devices and find which ones contain this library. We had to then replicate whether or not uh, this uh, was a vulnerability in that particular instance and configuration in how we were using the library. And uh, and then we had to uh, start manufacturing uh, patches and updates. We had to communicate. We immediately communicate with our customers through technical bulletins uh, or customer service notifications. Um, and, uh, and then we had to get back to the researcher, figure out ways to frame the communication, see if there's any way to request more time because fixing OT flaws, um, you can't, uh, generally utilities only shut down in like the spring or the fall when um, there's not going to be a a probability of peak usage. Um, And uh, so they schedule these shutdowns probably sometimes uh, really far in advance. Um, So we try to work with and get an idea of which customers we think are going to be affected by this. And... uh, and so then we tried to negotiate like a longer time before public disclosure. Um, uh, and then we start crafting communication. So product security instant response is about all of those things. It's about bringing the engineers together with the product leaders, together with the cyber intel people, so we know if this thing is being exploited, together with the legal people, with the uh, comms, working with external entities like the researchers themselves and with the uh, CISA or ICS CERT or whatever the CERT is for the particular uh, country that might be involved, um, and uh, it takes uh, it takes coordination, it takes time, and no single person can really do it. So that's what product security incident response is, whether it's coming from a third party or from um, uh, or from the customer themselves. So you, you know, that, that that's an interesting answer. You talked about. Um you know, working with the researchers, a lot of people make demands, you know, in, insist that, that the vendors are doing something wrong, that they should do stuff better. What do you need the rest of the world to do to better, to, you know, to, to help you out? Because, you know, th- these, these are important problems. Yeah, I like that question. Um, so we can kind of break the world up into some categories. First, let's talk about our customers, um, in every customer negotiation, we start the conversation of security, but we let the customers lead the conversation. And if cu- if security is a low priority to our customers, then it becomes a low priority to us. We might push in as much security as we can, but uh, when it comes to delivering a product, we want to do what our customers want to do. So as as soon as our customers can start 
building in security requirements. Um, and uh, as soon as they can start asking questions and requesting uh, more secure implementations and are willing to pay for the additional effort um, and capability that it, that is required in order to integrate uh, that security into the products, then that will help us to, to more rapidly start building in uh, more security and, and building in security at a much lower level in the products that are being delivered. So you, you mentioned researchers specifically, um, and that's uh, another category. Um, we... We love it when researchers come to us and provide us insight into our products. Um, we view it uh, as a as a gift, <laughs> um, and uh, we then try to, as rapidly as we can, uh, go through replicate this in our product. Um, try to understand the implications in how that product is deployed in our customer environments, and uh, and this takes more time than, than perhaps in the traditional web-based applications world. Um, and so what we would ask is that the researchers work with us, follow up with us, but uh, at least have a little bit of patience. Um, and the researchers should demand, us, demand from us uh, information about like how we're doing, where we're going with this. Um, and uh, I think we'll be able to grow together the security of these products and then the, the third area is um, events like this, the, the ICS JWG. I hope that um, uh, our competitors and other product vendors will increasingly come to these types of uh, exchanges so that the conversation isn't always about network uh, security, about securing our OT networks, but that the conversation can also be about how do we build security into products, new architectures for uh, integrating two-factor authentication, about how we can do security uh, less expensively, about how we can deliver it more quickly, about how we can integrate the, what we know about product security into what's then known about um, uh, how to implement network security, where they should be looking, for example, um, and what kinds of things they should be paying attention to. And I guess the third, the, uh, the, the the final community is our our third party uh, vendors. Um, it's uh, there's kind of like this uh, bullwhip effect, if you will. Um, Cisco might have uh, discovered a vulnerability, and they might send embargoed information to uh, Rockwell, for example, that might uh, then consider it for their Stratix switch, who then might send it to. GE because we use the Rockwell Stratic switch in a deployment of a you know some kind of a power generation facility, and uh, each time it goes down the line, we have less time to do this response effectively. And so, if we can do better at collaborating across the, across these vendor communities, and we're slowly starting to build those relationships, we're kind of building them one at a time. Um, uh, so if there are forums where we can build those relationships so that we can share this information uh, as we are using people's products, um, as we're starting to do third-party product assessments, uh, as we're starting to do this integration, that will then help us to build in uh, layers of controls as well as more quickly respond to product security incidents as they emerge. 
I must say, Andrew, I found it a bit odd that, that Kenneth seemed to suggest that customers were the ones who would be dictating the value of security in GE products. Should customers be deciding how important security is for their products? I mean, we live in a world where the two most popular passwords are password and one, two, three, four, five, six. And now we're asking customers to to be the ones to decide this for the experts? That's a good question. I, I don't think that that uh, Kenneth was saying he's he wants customers to, uh, you know, dictate what kind of security GE should put in their products. GE is the expert on their products, not the customers. And, uh, you know, to your point, a lot of customers are not experts on security. I think the point he's making is that um, there has to be at least some degree of demand from the customers for security. Uh, because, you know, all of the activities that that Kenneth has described consume effort, they consume money, you know, they take money to do, and they delay product releases in order to do all that. And if sooner or later, you know, up front or down the road, um, customers uh, don't appreciate it either by saying I want this stuff it's part of my requirements or down the road saying you know I'm really happy I bought this stuff and you know give good recommendations Um, at some point there's got to be a realization of the value for GE to justify putting this stuff in if it's simply not used not appreciated not nothing it's it's really hard to justify the investment I mean, what I took away from from Kenneth's comments in in you know later in his, his comments had to do with the, the the complexity of the supply chain issue. We had um, Eric Byers from Adolis on a, a previous podcast talking about the the software bill of materials and how important that was. You know, what kinds of libraries are in included in products and libraries that are included in our products in you know whoever whatever vendor is talking. Um, but Kenneth pointed out that it's it's deeper than that. It's what kind of software is involved in, I don't know, the firmware in the BIOS in each of the computers that they're shipping as part of their product. What kind of, of uh, uh, you know, the, the example he gave was a Cisco library in, incorporated into a Rockwell switch, and then the Rockwell switch is purchased outright and included in a package of uh, hardware and software technology that's delivered to a a GE customer and said, you know, here's your solution. Um, It's one thing to say for each of the GE products, let's keep track of the bill of materials and what kinds of libraries are included, what kinds of, you know, third-party software is included, what kind of third-party software is included in the third-party software that's included in our stuff. It's another thing to say, let's look at each of the hardware products and figure out what software is on them, what, you know, somebody else's software product entirely and try and get a bill of materials out of them that's as detailed as we need. Um, you know, he described a, a, a very big um, supply chain problem that, that uh, I haven't heard the answer to. So we like to leave our guests with the last word. You know, this, is, this has been a lot of words, but, um, you know, what kind of, what, what message would you like to leave with our listeners? So I'll just I'll just preface this by saying GE has we have a big understanding of what's going on around around the world, right? A third of the world's electricity is produced from GE turbines. Fifty percent of commercial airplanes have GE engines in them, 
every engine has over 5,000 sensors in it, um, and uh, that produces four terabytes of information per flight. That helps us to optimize the engine performance. And GE's view is that the world is becoming increasingly connected, uh, that there, in, people are increasingly looking for opportunities to have remote control, because in, in some cases we've seen remote uh, third-party access to certain kinds of data and the analytics that comes from them, uh, able to save, uh, like an oil and gas refinery, for example, over $40 uh, million a year just by helping them improve their maintenance. And uh, so these kinds of things, these are the trends that we're seeing. And yet we're also, we're tracking uh, uh, dozens of uh, attack campaigns against um, GE networks or GE equipment. These are attempts to try to find information, exploit information um, that ultimately might be intended. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty in this tracking, but ultimately, ultimately might be intended for um, damaging critical infrastructure. So uh, product security is becoming increasingly important. Um, and uh, But the only way it will really work well is if everyone across the supply chain is working together. So if uh, our customers understand their, their needs well enough to articulate the security requirements so that we can make sure that they're properly engineered and that they then have more control over the security decision-making that's happening. If uh, the researchers work with us so that we uh, are able to, they push us to rapidly patch these things, but they're patient with us, so there's not an overly early public disclosure, um, but that there's a rapid customer disclosure that maybe the researcher should be included on. Um, if we work together across uh, the supply chain so that um, we are notifying uh, our, that we're always notifying our customers quickly, that way across the supply chain when there is a vulnerability that impacts products, and that those products are then integrated in other products, that this, uh, this uh, uh, securing of the overall uh, uh, set of integrated products across all of critical infrastructure um, can happen rapidly uh, and efficiently. I think these are the things that really need to happen, and these will help us to not be afraid of the future of... Um, connectivity and uh, remote control and data sharing, all these things that could potentially save a lot of money, but rather those uh, trends will motivate us to be asking the hard questions of how do we actually secure it when it's under the, these, uh, these constraints and how do we separate the physical outcomes from the information processes that are potentially driving them and driving uh, the, the, the money that you make um, uh, and the the infrastructure services that are provided by them. So I think this is this is what I'm really calling for is that we really need to start working together and figuring out the ways to work together, not just on the network security and protection side, but also on the product side. And that w that will require a slightly different and a slightly more nuanced <laughs> set of set of conversations. <laughs> Andrew, how about your last word? Well, this has been very interesting. I mean, I uh, I had no idea the the layers of complexity that are in, involved in in modern product security initiatives. 
Um, you know, I think the my takeaway here is that you know Kenneth has talked about sort of the mundane uh, encrypt stuff, the the uh, you know the more exotic uh, you know threat models and data flow analysis. Um, to me, the trickiest thing he touched on was the the, the supply chain issue, the uh, you know third party entire products, hardware, software, everything, trying to get bills and materials for them and understanding how they affect the system. And, um, you know, even even beyond that, talking about vendors working together to produce common approaches to security. He, I mean, in the middle of the interview, he mentioned uh, two-factor authentication as an example of that at the, you know, his, his ICS JWG example. Um, you know, imagine that every vendor in the world, I mean, currently two-factor authentication is not used much inside of production facilities, power plants, refineries, whatnot. Uh, it's used at the edge when, you know, someone is remote accessing, but not inside. If you want that layer, that level of security to be used inside the facility, well, a facility might have, you know, one vendor. That's rare. Might have 10 vendors, might have 50 vendors. It depends on the facility. You know, a, a discrete manufacturing facility, you know, putting together, I don't know, washing machines might have 100 vendors. If each of those vendors has a different two-factor authentication scheme, now, you know, people have these, these uh, you know, keychains with 75 key fobs and badges and whatnot hanging off of them, trying to fumble to figure out what's the right device to log into, uh, you know, to do the two-factor logging, logging into a system so that you can do your job. It just becomes impractical. And so, you know, the even higher level complexity is if you, if you want to do some of this uh, advanced product security. Now we have to have the product vendors talking to each other about how it can all be compatible, how it can all be usable by the end user. So, you know, in short, it's complicated. It sounds like, you know, there's a lot of good work happening and there's a lot of good work left to do. And with that, we just have one more thing to talk about. Andrew, you were recently featured on another podcast. Yes, I was a guest on the Energy Exchange podcast by Enernex. The topic was, of course, industrial security. We talked about the recent um, Government Accountability Office report. That's uh, GAO for short. The GAO report on cybersecurity for the U.S. electric grid. Uh, from there, we launched into uh, a more general discussion of what's important in industrial security for the electric sector. And here's the thing. In our podcast here, we try to be all about our guests. Now, I'm pretty sure that some of my own ideas leak into this podcast, but we try to be all about our guests. What I really liked about the Energy Exchange episode is that I got to talk about my own ideas about the right way to do industrial security. So if any of our listeners are curious about what I think about industrial security, feel free to connect with the Energy Exchange podcast by Enernex, E-N-E-R-N-E-X, uh, the episode is cybersecurity. Are we really prepared? And do drop me a note on LinkedIn or an email and let me know what you think. And with that, thanks so much to Kenneth Crowther for speaking with you, Andrew. And thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. A reminder to everybody to leave us a review, hopefully more of the good than the bad and the ugly. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>